It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That pretty starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a fatigue, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs, something to your own life, beat it up and I believe got no peace, the ladder puts the platter with the fear, fight down, take fire in the fire, the system of the gangs, the government for hire in the combat site, but you wasn't coming in a hurry, leave the jury, beat it down your neck. You better see the border, traffic, some pay the problem with that low plane, find them, up for overflow, five minutes, corners, you put in a loose, leave the devil, save the devil, world, in your own need, see your heart, tell me the surrender in the river with the right, you patriotic, patriotic, plan, fight, right, fight, feel it, sweet inside, it's the end. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom and bloom. Hey, friends and neighbors, welcome to the Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour, a time of triumph in a turbulent world. I'm Joe Alden, MD, also known as Dr. Bones of doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 800 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness for any disaster. And I'm Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner and a certified nurse midwife. And the hostess with the mostess, I might add, our mission to put a medically prepared person in every family for any disaster. Together, we are the watchers on the wall, and we watch it all for you to help you keep it together even if everything else falls apart. Friends and neighbors, have you been injured in an accident with an irritable iguana? Our attorney says, how do I pick these things? Our attorney (laughs) says, good question, question, right? Awesome question. Don't call me, call Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy and listen to this. All information given and opinions voiced on Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy's Survival Medicine Hour are for entertainment purposes only and do not represent medical advice for anything other than post-apocalyptic settings. No contract or provider-patient relationship exists or is implied between the hosts and listeners. Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy strongly urge their audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. Absolutely. I was going to say possible. (laughs) Seek modern care. You'd be a fool not to take advantage of the miracles of modern medicine, but you still might be glad you learn how to deal with injuries and illness in times of trouble. Hey, what's the action, Jackson? We learn as much from you as you do from us. So connect with us. It's easy. And here's the lovely nurse Amy to tell you how. Feel free to email us anytime at drbonespodcast at aol.com. Find us on Facebook at our group, Survival Medicine, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. We have a couple of Facebook pages, Doom and Bloom and Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy Show. We also have a personal Facebook page, Joe Alton, MD. You can follow us on Twitter at Prepper Show, and don't forget our YouTube channel at Dr. Bones Nurse Amy, and our other podcast all about current events, American Survival Radio. And don't forget our brand spanking new edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, seven hundred pages, the third edition now available on Amazon, and our book on Zika virus, the Zika virus handbook, both subjects. I'll bet you'd benefit from knowing a little bit about. 
Now, in the news. In the news. Reports from Florida. Wait, are... should we do that little sound bite? <laughs> <laughs> bop, bop. <laughs> I can give you one. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> we should probably. Maybe I'll put it in. Yes. All right. Well. Wow, what was that? <laughs> <laughs> You added a little something there. Amazing. Well, that is sort of a news, I guess, blurb. There, a news, little news musical interlude. Can we play it again? And no, actually, I don't. <laughs> and in the news, reports from Florida are suggesting that local mosquitoes may have transmitted the Zika virus to two people. This is a new development that, if confirmed, validates the CDC's prediction that local cases will be seen in warm weather states this summer. As of July 20th, 46 states have recorded more than 1,400 cases of Zika infection until now all travel-related. In the U.S. territory of Puerto Rico, however, there are almost 4,000 cases. Almost all of them are locally transmitted. Although Zika poses the most risk to pregnant women and their fetuses, the virus continues to defy expectation as new and unusual cases mount. The viral disease is transmitted by Aedes mosquitoes. Aedes is Greek for unpleasant, I'll say and can attack brain and other nerve cells in fetuses, leading to the terrible condition called microcephaly, where the head is much smaller than it should be and, I guess, a corresponding brain to match. Zika virus has also been associated with nerve disorders in humans, including the paralysis-inducing Guillain-Barre syndrome. Investigators with the CDC are trying to determine if the two cases in Florida were indeed a result of a bite by local mosquitoes. In each case, there doesn't seem to be a history of travel to the epidemic zone. Little is known as of yet of the Florida cases other than their origin in the southern part of the state in Dade and Broward counties. Florida is a state particularly hard hit due to the favorable climate for these mosquitoes. New York City, though, surprisingly, with its large Latin and Caribbean population, is another area that has a very large number of cases. Now, while the major concern with Zika virus is its effect on the developing fetus, new cases are leading some to question whether we really know a lot about the virus. These cases are rare, at least at present, but they suggest that more people may be at risk than originally thought. The CDC also reports that in New York City, a woman who contracted Zika during a trip to the epidemic zone has infected her male partner through sexual intercourse. Previously, Zika was thought to be a purely male-to-female or male-to-male transmission. Now it's possible that vaginal secretions might just have the same ability as seminal fluid to spread the virus. That is very important because if a female can also transmit the infection sexually, it really widens the population that's at risk. Although Zika virus lasts only a short time in the blood, maybe a week or so, it's thought that it exists in seminal fluid for two months or more due to what we call immune privilege. That means certain organs are relatively immune to your body's defense mechanisms, including the one that allows you to reproduce. So the virus might possibly hide there for a longer period of time. But what happens if it lasts longer? We just don't know how long it really lasts. What if last six months. Ebola virus lasts six months in the testicles, and the question is, is even six months long enough to avoid sex or use protection? We just really don't know. Also in Utah, an elderly man dies of complications due to the Zika virus. That is very rare. Usually it's a mild illness by itself. Was there some other medical issue that made it a fatal event? Was he immune compromised or something like that? 
he was found to have more than 100,000 times the usual amount of virus in his system. Why did he have a particularly bad strain? How many strains of Zika are there? We don't know. It's certainly acting different in South America than it did in Africa originally. So, like many viruses, it probably has mutated. So, this is something that we don't know. We have to learn more. Now, the New York Times reports that a family caregiver of that same Utah man is found to have been infected. How did that happen? Is it exposure to blood? Uh, was he handling the bedpan? Is that, does that mean other bodily fluids can pass on the Zika virus? Uh, was it airborne droplets? We, we really don't know. So does this now mean that we have to be worried about casual contact between humans as opposed to worrying about getting an, a mosquito bite or having sexual relations with someone who has Zika virus. Does that mean that the CDC has to revamp its contagion protocols for, let's say, people that work in hospitals? We, we don't know. More troubling news. The CNN network reported that researchers in Brazil have found Zika in local Culex mosquitoes, which are much more common than the Aedes mosquitoes. The Culex mosquito is that brown mosquito that can live even in temperate climates. Does that mean that more northern U.S. states are at risk? Right now, it's considered to be more of a problem in Texas and Florida than it is in Minnesota. But the Culex mosquito is all over the United States. So this is another thing we don't know. Now, all of this that I'm telling you obviously sounds like paranoia on my part. I mean, Zika doesn't No, even... I, honestly, I'm going to pipe in here. I really think that... What you're doing is just educating people about all the unknowns and all of the things that pop up almost daily about this disease. I mean, we just don't know how some people are getting it. If somebody has not traveled to another country and they haven't had sex with the person who's known to have Zika, how did they get it? You have to wonder. So I... I think that you're just doing a public service, honey, and I really think you should continue to talk about this when these things pop up. it's Eventually, we're going to have some answers, but along the way, folks who are going to read these reports are going to see them on the news and say, my goodness, what could be an answer for how this person got in? I, I believe that you're giving plausible theories as to the why they got infected. Well, it seems to me that this is a very strange virus. It doesn't cause symptoms in 80% of people, mild I, symptoms in others. <laughs> but then if a pregnant woman gets it, her child has severe a chance, right? Long-term, never changing, cannot be treated, never corrected, debilitating, life-altering stuff happening to them. And that's it's the, horrible. that's the thing and it's thought that each one of these babies that is significantly affected by microcephaly is going to cost millions of dollars throughout an otherwise generally normal life to care for it. So it is really it's a big a, issue. It is. There's so many mysteries around this. I think they knew, as much as they didn't know about Ebola, I think they knew more about Ebola than they, do than about, they know Zika. about Zika. That's true. It, That's it's true. just bizarre. You know, the fact that it's a silent infection in a lot of people might be the most concerning aspect of the infection. Exactly. A pregnant woman that has an asymptomatic Zika infection won't know her fetus is affected until ultrasounds are done later in the pregnancy that reveal a poor growth of the baby's head. And when they do, 
they don't make a decision based on one ultrasound. Exactly. So what happens, let's say you're 12 weeks and you get an ultrasound. Uh, it's not a typical time for an ultrasound, but I think they're doing a lot more ultrasounds these days than when we were in practice a few years ago. So let's say you get one at 12 weeks, and maybe she had an early Zika infection and the baby already has it. And they say, well, you know, eh. They really can't tell. At that point, at we're that talking point. about millimeters yeah, of, a- of growth difference between right. a 5% and a 90% growth range. Right. They won't notice until later. They won't. They'll say, well, you know, maybe. But then again, genetically, maybe your family has smaller heads. I mean, I certainly have a smaller head than you have. I mean, we don't know what our baby would have had. Mm, What does that (laughs) mean? I don't have a tiny head. Oh, no. (laughs) But, you know, there are families that have, you know, you see these guys with these big giant heads and then these people with smaller heads. It doesn't mean they're smarter or, or dumber. That's not a judgment. But... What I'm saying is at 12 weeks, they do an ultrasound. So they have a starting point. And they say, oh, you know, we don't know. Let's check it in six weeks. I think that. Or four weeks. And then they say, well, you know, maybe it's a little slow. Let's wait another four or six weeks. A lot of people don't even get the first ultrasound until they're 16 weeks, 17 weeks. 16 to 18 weeks. That's when the typical first ultrasound is done. Perhaps there's one done around you know, the first visit. If someone has a high-risk pregnancy or perhaps they had a miscarriage prior and the woman just really needs some reassurance. But typically, like you said, the normal ultrasound is done between 16 and 18 weeks. It's not much longer after that that really legally, forget morally, but legally you're even allowed to do anything about it if the patient wanted that. So it's a really horrible thing. Pretty much everyone, by the time they have figured out that this baby has this severe microcephaly, it's late it, in the pregnancy. It's probably. just you know what you're gonna you're just gonna have to deal with it. Now some of them do miscarry, and there is a percentage yes. that they've t- been following even here in America. There are twelve babies born in the U.S. so far with microcephaly, right? And six that had apparently defects far that were bad enough that they did not. Right. Continue. The pregnancy still, just didn't continue. They, right, right. So that they is... They passed away in, right. inside the belly. Exactly, exactly. But the thing is, is that what about those kids that come out? Not every baby that's infected with Zika comes out looking abnormal. And what about the development of those kids down the line? Uh, what if they don't make normal milestones at the normal time, like walking and talking? It, we maybe don't eyesight know. problems. Right, exactly. Walking, maybe they're not holding their head up. I mean, you just don't know, other than the size of the head, if the head looks normal, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's functioning normal. And the worst part of it is that we may not know for a period of years that that child has been affected and and is going to need help. And you know what's going to happen? If it has been years, let's say the mom had no symptoms, and maybe it was the father who passed it to the mom. Maybe he had no symptoms. If they don't test the placenta and the baby and the amniotic fluid or one of those at birth, it's unlikely they'll ever know the reason for, sure that, for that, that baby's right. issues. They'll right. just never, ever know. And that's what's really... That's a good point. ...frightening. You know, at five years later, they say, oh, you know, Johnny's not doing so well in kindergarten, and 
he can't hear real well and he doesn't see words and they're just now discovering this because he's in official school and and those things are necessary um and they'll, they'll never know what happened all this is really terrible and paints it's a horrible. paints a very bleak picture for people who have been infected with gotta, Zika virus. But, we got to get rid of this. <laughs> but Zika virus is not Ebola. I mean, people aren't right. dropping dead in the no, streets. No, they're not. It's the children we're worried right. about. We have to have a calm and reasoned approach to this virus. And we have a lot to learn. We have to realize, I mean, that's part of wisdom is knowing what you don't know. And we need funds to study this virus and develop vaccines if necessary, aid efforts at mosquito control and communities that are at risk. But you know what? Partisan bickering, bickering on the part That's of politicians. That's not going to help. Not going to help. Doesn't help in it's, any way, shape, or form. It slowed what I think are needed appropriations that might make a difference in the spread of the epidemic disease. We cannot allow politics to infect the Zika debate. Play on words, there. Did you get that? To I, play yeah, on, yes. <laughs> politicians should support the researchers that are trying to make sure that this mysterious disease doesn't become a medical crisis in the U.S. now or in the future. It's already too late, in my opinion, to avoid the complications of Zika virus in the U.S. this summer. It's already an epidemic in Puerto Rico. If we're smart, though, we'll facilitate the research that's needed to truly understand it and its short and long-term effects. Hey, you know, it is summer. Last week we talked about, a lot of people are outdoors, and we talked about all sorts of issues, including animal bites. But the warm, furry kinds of animals aren't the only ones that are going to give you a nice nip and cause (laughs) major medical problems. There are snakes around. Now, in a grid-down scenario, you're going to find yourself out in the woods a lot more frequently. You're going to be gathering firewood, hunting, foraging for edible wild plants as such you're going to encounter snakes during your travels. Now, most snakes aren't poisonous, but even non-venomous snake bites do have potential to become infected. Poison is actually the wrong word to use when you're talking about a snake. Venoms and poisons aren't the same thing. You should call them venomous snakes. Poisons are absorbed by the skin or digestive system. The venoms have to enter the tissue or the blood directly. That's the difference. Therefore, it's Interesting enough, you might find it interesting that it's not dangerous in most cases to drink snake venom unless you have, for example, a cut in your mouth. Don't try that, though. North America has two kinds of venomous snakes, the pit vipers, rattlesnakes and and the like, and elipids, the coral snakes, the beautiful coral snakes. One or more of these snakes can be found almost everywhere in the continental U.S. A member of another viper family, the common adder, is the only venomous snake in Britain, but it and other adders are common throughout Europe, except for Ireland, apparently, thanks to St. Patrick. (laughs) These snakes generally have hollow fangs through which... Are you paying attention? No, I was... I'm actually... I'm so sorry. Paying attention to the DNC convention. There's a a big old um, uh, protest going on. (laughs) Oh, boy. What a mess. I'm sorry, I was following a little politics. On both sides of the aisle. Yeah. Venomous snakes usually have hollow fangs through which they deliver their nastiness. Snakes are most active. (laughs) I like the way you put that. Yeah, there you go. Snakes are most active during the warmer months, as I mentioned, and therefore most bite injuries are seen then. But interestingly enough, not every bite from a venomous snake does transfer its poison to the victim. 25% of these, 30% of these will show no ill effects whatsoever. And this probably has to do with the, the duration of time 
that the snake has its fangs in the victim. And the other possibility is what did they bite recently? Oh, that's right. If what they else did they recently, use their venom on and exactly, have they had a chance sure. to regenerate it? Smart. Thinking. That is all, that is a definitely a possibility. Well, anyhow, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Be sure to wear good, solid, high-top boots and long pants when you're hiking in the wilderness. Treading heavily creates ground vibrations and noise, which will often cause snakes to hit the road. Snakes don't have an outer ear. They hear ground vibrations actually better than those by feeling them, better than those in the air caused by, let's say, shouting. Now, many snakes are active at night, especially in warm weather, so some activities of daily survival, such as gathering firewood, are inadvisable without a good light source at night. In the wilderness, it's important to know where you're putting your hands and feet. Look before you touch. Be especially careful around areas where snakes like to hide, like hollow logs, under rocks, old shelters, places like that. Wearing heavy gloves is a reasonable precaution, very reasonable. Okay, so you say tread hev- heavily. So the walk softly and carry a big stick? <laughs> it's not a good idea. It's good for walk heavy and carry a big stick. That I think is a, a good anti human deterrent, what you're mentioning, <laughs> right? but not for snakes. Okay. Now, a snake doesn't always slither away after it bites you. It's likely that it still has more venom that it can inject. So get out of its territory or abolish the threat in any way that you can. Now, killing the snake, by the way, doesn't necessarily render it harmless. It can reflexively bite for a period of time, even if its head's been severed from its body. That's amazing. Snake bites can cause a burning pain immediately. If they do, they're more likely to have venom in them. Swelling at the site may begin as soon as five minutes afterwards and could travel up the affected area. Pit viper bites, rattlesnake bites, tend to cause bruising and blisters at the site of the wound. Numbness you might be noted in the area of bitten, maybe on, and maybe on your lips and face. Some victims describe a metallic or other strange taste in their mouth. Now, with pit vipers, bruising is not uncommon, and a serious bite might start to cause spontaneous bleeding from the nose and gums. Coral snake bites, though, will cause mental and nerve issues, such as twitching, confusion, and slurred speech. Later, nerve damage may cause difficulty with swallowing and breathing, and that can cause that can be followed by total collapse. Coral snakes appear very similar to their look-alike, the non-venomous king snake. They both have red, yellow, and black bands. They're commonly confused with each other. This is how you remember. The old saying goes like this. Red touches yellow. Red band touches yellow band. Kill a fellow. Red touches black. Red band touches black. Venom it lacks. And this adage is good for North America, but only for North America, North American coral snakes. Snakes in other areas may have other patterns. Now, coral snakes aren't as aggressive as pit vipers, and they'll prefer fleeing to attacking, but once they bite you, they tend to hold on, whereas pit vipers prefer to bite and then let go quickly. Now, unlike coral snakes, though, pit vipers may not relinquish their territory to you, at least not easily, so be prepared to be bitten again if you stay in the area. Now, what do you do if you're bitten by a snake? Well, the treatment for a venomous snake bite is something called antivenom, an animal or human serum with antibodies capable of neutralizing a toxin. This product will probably be obviously unavailable in a long-term survival situation, The following strategy is going to be useful in that case. Now, you have to keep the victim calm. Stress increases blood flow, and that can endanger the patient by speeding venom into the system. 
You want to stop all movement of the injured extremity. Movement's going to move the venom into the circulation faster. Keep the limbs still if you possibly can. Clean the wound thoroughly to remove any venom that's not deep in the wound. And make sure you remove any rings and bracelets from the affected extremity because swelling is likely to occur. You might not be able to get them off afterwards. Now, position the extremity before or at the level of the heart, preferably, I think, a little bit below. This also slows the transport of venom. I think that is a little controversial. Wrap with compression bandages as you would, let's say, an orthopedic injury, an ankle sprain or something like that. But continue it a little further up the limb, in other words, closer to the torso, than you might ordinarily. Bandaging usually begins two to four inches above the bite. Uh, it winds around, moving up and then down over the bite and then past it towards the hand or foot, whichever area has been bitten. Make sure you keep the wrapping about as tight as when you dress a sprained ankle, much tighter than that. It's too tight. Matter of fact, that even how you would dress a sprained ankle might be too tight too. So just the bottom line is to have it snug but not too tight if you if it's too tight by the way the victim is going to reflective reflexively move the limb they're going to be uncomfortable and they're going to move the venom around that's bad make sure not to use tourniquets they do more harm than good concentrating the venom in a certain area and i think that is a big myth people are told it's an old school thing to tightly wrap around and let's just be clear folks when you get injected with anything, venom or any kind of medication, liquid medication, your absorption of that happens nearly instantaneously. You have teeny tiny little vascular veins. You have absorption going on, and it is moved away from that area very quickly. And that is one of the reasons why these little snake bite kits are completely useless, which I know you're going to talk about in a minute. And the principle is if you inject something, it's immediately moving away from that local site. It's it's getting in the blood system. It might be getting into the muscle itself. It's being absorbed and moved away. That's what your body does. It absorbs when you inject. It's just like when you're eating, your food is actually being absorbed in your mouth. That's why you have a lot of these medications that absorb on the tongue. They melt on the tongue because that's what's happening. And so these localized um, venom suckers are not really going to move a lot of it, remove a lot of venom. And I, again, I know you're going to talk about that. No, in we'll a talk, let's talk but, about it right but, now. But again, and it's the same principle as to why the tourniquet. Or, or any kind of compression is not going to work because you are not going to prevent your vascular system from absorbing something because you put an ACE bandage or because you put a tourniquet on. I mean, you would have to, like, cut off the leg. And even then, how long it took you to cut off the leg or the hand, you know, sawing through it as Didn't fast that... as you can, you would still have some some of that venom that's gone up in those... the. Vascular system yeah. is still connected. Didn't they do that in Walking Dead? To <laughs> well, they cut it. Yeah, it was say, a joke. They didn't become a, a zombie. <laughs> oh my god, it was a joke. <laughs> well, you're certainly right. It's no longer recommended to make an incision, try to suck out the venom with your mouth. Uh, if it's if you do this more than maybe two or three minutes after the actual bite, it would remove a very small amount of the venom and could cause could cause damage or infection to the bitten area. You got bacteria in your mouth, and the 
extractors that you're talking about are called Sawyer extractors. It's like a syringe with a suction cup. It's more modern but fairly ineffective in removing more than a small amount of the venom. Yeah, there are no snake experts that will tell you to use those. Exactly. Uh, One thing I think is very important is you should draw a circle with a flare or or any other marker around the affected area. As time progresses, you'll see either a widening of this uh, affected area and you'll see improvement or worsening at the site more clearly if you keep putting a, uh, a circle around the area that has been inflamed. And if you can do that, you can follow any local reaction or infection pretty effectively. Remember to rest that limb, uh, maybe immobilize it with a splint or a sling. The less movement there is, the better. Keep your patient on bed rest and with the bite site a little lower than the heart for about 24 to 48 hours. This strategy, by the way, also works for bites from Gila monsters, those venomous lizards. So it actually Those works. are scary. They it remind me of dinosaurs. Them. They do. They're <laughs> crazy looking things. Yeah, just make them a little bit bigger. <laughs> By the way, snake bites cause less infections from the bite itself than, say, bites from cats, dogs, or humans. They Mammals seem to have much more bacteria in their mouths. Lucky as, us. <laughs> as such, antibiotics are used less often in these cases. They, exceptions might be black widow spiders. Uh, brown recluse Oof. spiders, maybe some caterpillars or scorpions. A lot of these bites can inject toxins that can cause major damage, death of tissue. Oh, yeah. And we're talking about the bite itself, not a disease that might be passed on by an insect, such as we talked about with Zika being passed mm-hmm. by a mosquito-borne illness. You know, it, it's kind of funny that a spider, and you have to think about how tiny the spiders are and how how the amount of venom that can possibly be in a spider, especially the brown recluse, who's a little little bitty thing. I mean, the damage that is done. Right, I got bitten. I, I got bitten, I think, in April. It's, like, just now healed. And I didn't have a bad bite. No. I you... have seen bad bites. It was painful, and it took a really long time and had a deep, open wound, but... Nothing compared to what I have seen. Oh, my goodness. It's thought that brown recluse spider venom is actually much more powerful than rattlesnake venom. It's just that you get injected with less of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't even call it a drop. A a spider can't even hold a drop. We're talking about parts of a drop inside a brown recluse spider. It's just insane. So now, don't get bitten by a brown recluse spider. That's right. <laughs> that's my advice. So spiders bite and yes. mosquitoes bite, but other insects sting. And they can be annoyances, but for up to 3% of the population, they can be life-threatening. In the United States, there are 40 to 50 deaths a year caused by hypersensitivity reactions caused by the sting of a bee or wasp or a hornet. Now, a bee's got to leave its stinger in the victim, but wasps Take their stingers with them, and they can sting again. If a bee leaves its stinger in you, that means that it's also left part of its intestinal tract in you as well, or with it, and that bee is a goner, but not before <laughs> it causes you a lot of I know, right? heartache. And I don't just, think that gives me any solace. That's right. I've been bitten by those when I lived in Georgia when I was a kid. I was not happy knowing that I was dead. All I cared about was the pain, this terrible pain. Oh, 
That is that is right. Oof. Now, even though you won't get stung again by the same bee, they do send out a scent that informs nearby bees that an attack is underway. And that's especially true with those bees that are called Africanized, that apparently are hybrids of, of very aggressive bees in Africa. And these bees, or actual African bees that somehow made it over here, and those are much more aggressive than native bees. So just beware. Wasps and hornets are also called vespids, by the way can also be very persistent in their pursuit of an intruder, and that is you as such. Leave the area immediately, whether it's a bee, wasp, or hornet. Now, the best way to reduce any reaction to bee venom is to remove the bee stinger as quickly as possible. If you have tweezers, pull it out, or scrape it out with your fingernail, or a sharp-edged object, even a credit card would do. Right. And that is very important. The venom sac of a bee shouldn't be manipulated as you're doing this, because it's going to inject more irritant into the victim. That's important. The longer, bee st- the longer that bee stingers are allowed to remain in the body, the higher chance for a severe reaction. Now, the good news, most bee stings and wasp stings will heal with little or no treatment. But for those who experience a reaction, then you know what? You need to deal with it. Now, for most bee stings and most uh, wasp stings, uh, just clean the area thoroughly. Remove the stinger if you can at all. Place cold packs and anesthetic ointments to relieve discomfort and local swelling. And also something helpful to either remove the stinger or also to help with neutralizing the venom and with inflammation and redness and pain is a baking soda mix. And I think you're going to talk about that in just a minute. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Of course, there's always acetaminophen, ibuprofen, Tylenol, and Advil. To help reduce discomfort and uh, antibiotic ointments can prevent infection. But there are a lot of natural products that can use that you can use a baking soda paste, baking soda mixed with a small amount of water could be very useful when you apply it to a sting wound. Also, oils like peppermint oil, tea tree, helichrysum, lavender. Apply maybe a drop or so to the affected area. That will help be helpful as well. And you want to do that after you remove the stinger if you can, at all, if that's at all possible. Now, most of these injuries are relatively minor. There are quite a few people, though, who are allergic to the toxins in the stings. Some are so allergic, they'll have what we call an, an anaphylactic reaction. Instead of just local symptoms like rashes and itching at the area where the sting occurred, they're going to experience things like dizziness or difficulty breathing or they can faint, things like that. Severe swelling, you might see that in some people. And it could be life-threatening if it closes the person's airways. That's very important. Those experiencing an anaphylactic reaction will require treatment with epinephrine. And as well as antihistamines, those are useful too. But epinephrine is the main thing. And people who are aware they're highly allergic to stings, whenever they go outside, they should be carrying antihistamines, epinephrine, things like that on their person. Epinephrine is available in a pre-measured dose cartridge known as the EpiPen. Very popular. There's a pediatric version as well. Uh, The EpiPen is a prescription medication, but very few doctors would begrudge a request for such a prescription, maybe for multiple prescriptions, especially if you let them know that you may be allergic to these kinds of stings. That's the important thing is make them aware you're going to be outside and you might be exposed to possible causes of anaphylaxis. As a matter of fact, a lot of people carry more than one EpiPen on their person if they are significantly allergic or if they have a family member who is. Now, how do you use an EpiPen? It's actually pretty easy. What you do is you 
Hold the EpiPen firmly with your fist right in the middle. Hold it right in the middle. Don't put any part of your hand over either end because that could cause an accidental trigger of the device. An EpiPen is a single-use device, so once it's triggered, it usually can't be reused. What you want to do is avoid placing your finger over either end. You want to pull off the blue, it's sort of an orange or blue thing, pull off the blue activation cap, and that's on the opposite end from an orange cap. The orange uh, tip is what holds the needle. What you want to do is you want to inject it into the mid-outer thigh. You place the orange tip against the thigh, and you push firmly. And there should be a click once the needle has entered the thigh. You hold it there for several seconds. Don't inject it in any other place than the thigh. And the outer thigh is usually best. Accidental intravenous injections of epinephrine can occur. They can lead to death. So make sure that you avoid anywhere other than the outer thigh. Now, the question is, can you inject through clothing? Yes, auto-injectors are designed to be long enough, the needle that is, to be able to go through a layer of clothing. If the clothing has pockets, make sure that the contents of the pockets, like car keys or coins, don't get in the way of the injection. They may block the medicine from going in. I might also be concerned about, like, thick jeans, maybe thin cotton pants or something nylon or polyester. I've read that it's long enough to go through a layer of jeans. That's great. So I have read that, but it is... I have not personally had to use an EpiPen. I have gotten epinephrine in the emergency room, but I have not used an EpiPen. So I have not seen it. And, and we do have prescriptions for it. Right. <laughs> we, do, we do have EpiPens. We've just not had to use them, knock on wood. Once you have that EpiPen in place and it's injected its uh, epinephrine into the body... Go ahead and remove the unit and massage the injection area for about 10 seconds. Always check the tip. The orange needle cover should automatically cover the needle once the EpiPen is removed from the thigh. It shouldn't be sticking out there. Which is a good safety measure. Right. Now, you have to prepare for possible side effects. When you give a person epinephrine with an an EpiPen, it may cause them to feel panicked and paranoid. Their, Their body may shake. This is not a seizure, and the shaking will normally subside over the next few minutes or hours. Their pulse rate will probably go up as well. So don't freak out. Just be calm and reassuring, and and your calm will help to settle the person's nerves. Now, 20% of acute anaphylaxis reactions are followed by another crisis. They call that biphasic anaphylaxis. So once you've administered or received the EpiPen dose, you should be seen by a doctor without delay if doctors are available. The second episode could be a very mild one. It could be severe. They really don't know. It differs in different people. And if not treated, it can lead to a fatality. So make sure that's why a second EpiPen might actually be very useful. Now, the second crisis happens normally after the patient seems to have recovered. So always make sure if there is a hospital nearby, go to the hospital even if you feel fine. And by the way, storing your EpiPen is something that has to be done correctly. Don't refrigerate the EpiPen. Keep it at room temperature and do not expose it, however, to extreme heat or extreme cold. Now, most EpiPens have a window that allow you to see through the packaging to the medicine inside. The medicine should be completely clear. If it looks cloudy or otherwise discolored, then that EpiPen has probably lost potency due to exposure to extreme temperatures. That can occur any time, of course. You can use it in an absolute emergency, believe it or not. I read that you can use it in an absolute emergency, but you should replace it as soon as you possibly can. Remember that degraded epinephrine loses potency. It doesn't 
transform itself into something very harmful, though, and it is always better than nothing. Now, once the EpiPen has been used, discard it safely, and you could consider bringing it to the pharmacy. They'll be happy to get rid of sharp objects for you that are used in medical care. Oh, you know what I didn't talk about that is a big issue that's going on this week is the heat dome, the summer heat wave People in the are melting, east and the literally. Midwest because <laughs> of the heat dome. And the what the heck is a heat dome? It's not the thunder dome. It is the heat dome. And this it's is the thunder dome if it was a hundred degrees inside. The <laughs> well, there is thunder, thunder and lightning around the edges of it. That's that is for sure. The, the heat dome is caused by hot air that's unable to escape because this, of this high-pressure system, this dome, that's over much of the central part of the country. And this system, uh, these high-pressure systems in summer, act uh, like a lid on a pot. And what hap- happens is the hot air goes up and it tries to escape, but then it is blocked by the high-pressure system. It goes back down and heats the ground some more. And that is, of course, very, very bad news. Uh, and it causes temperatures to soar and humidity as well. Storms can form at the turbulent edges, and oftentimes you'll see really severe storms or maybe tornadoes or hail even in some areas. And making matters worse, the heat index makes it all feel even hotter, terrible. The heat index is calculated from the temperature combined with the humidity, much like wind chill is a combination of air temperature and wind speed. High humidity limits the uh, uh, body's ability to sweat, and that's one of the most important ways that people have to get rid of excess heat. It's expected that due to the heat index, a lot of residents of the country are going to feel as if the temperature is 10 to 20 degrees higher than what the actual air temperature is. That's bad news because even in places like Wisconsin, Minnesota uh, have reached 90 degrees, and 10 or 20 degrees more than that, you got a real problem. It's gotten so bad that they've had to install cooling stations in the city of Chicago, that which is one big giant heat island. Uh, a heat island is an urban area that has a lot of paved roads and concrete buildings, and these absorb more heat during the day and cool down slower at night. And that's bad because that causes nighttime temperatures to stay high and doesn't give your body the relief that it needs from the midday heat. And you add to all this the stagnant air, pollutants, and stuff like that in many cities, you have a real health crisis. Doesn't sound good. That's right. In rural areas, you're not out of the woods either. Believe it or not, a lot of the humidity is coming from cornfields. Oh, boy. Believe it or not. the, the GMO huge, Monsanto you know, the cornfield cornfields. <laughs> the huge amount of land dedicated to growing corn in the Midwest increases air humidity. This is because corn sweats much like a human being sweats in hot weather. We call it evapotranspiration. And this humidity is going to have the effect of increasing the heat index even further. It is a big issue. I mean, you might consider a heat wave to be just a time to put an extra ice cube in the lemonade, but boy, it is a deadly natural disaster. I don't think that's enough, honey. I need a couple of extra (laughs) ice cubes. More people die in heat waves in the U.S. than just about any weather event short of something like Hurricane Katrina. Uh, A recent heat wave in the southwest and west caused temperatures to reach 124 degrees Fahrenheit in places like Palm Springs, California, Tucson, Arizona at 115 degrees. Don't ask me what it was like in Death Valley, 
That is amazing. That the highest temperature on Earth was recorded there, 134 degrees about 100 years ago. Oh. So that is absolutely pretty nutty. Matter of fact, the first six months of 2016, you might be surprised to know where the hottest, or might not be surprised to know, honestly, might were the hottest ever recorded according to NASA. So that's that is very interesting. Now you might think that the most danger is going to be in places like South Florida which has a subtropical climate all year round. But you know what? Citizens of Miami are accustomed to heat, and there are going to be less heat-related deaths there because they are their bodies are used to the heat. And places that are more temperate, milder weather places in other parts of the country are the places where people are in trouble. Residents of Minnesota say that they have less experience with extreme heat. Some buildings may not have air conditioners or, or central central air. And as a result, this puts these people at more risk for hyperthermia or heat-related emergencies. Older individuals that might have limited ability to seek help are especially at risk. So that is a big issue. I just want to let people know this is not just an American thing. In London, they had a brutal heat wave as well, much hotter than it usually is. Usually London is a pretty cool place, not only to visit, yeah, right. pretty, pretty cool, cool <laughs> as in temperature. And so uh, <clears throat> it is a, uh, a big issue for them as well. Now, the ill effects due to overheating are called heat exhaustion if they're mild to moderate. Uh, if severe, these effects are known as heat stroke. There are heat advisories that are put out by the U.S. Weather Service and uh, NOAA, 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 <laughs> and they have put out heat advisories. Believe it or not, in 26 states, reaching or encompassing 110 million Americans. Pretty amazing stuff. Now, heat exhaustion usually doesn't result in permanent damage, but heat—I mean, if you treat it right. rapidly, get, get it right. treated. Exactly. Don't ignore it. But heat stroke does. Matter of fact, it can permanently disable or even kill its victim. It is a true medical emergency that you have to identify and treat promptly. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody that has muscle cramps is having a heat stroke. That does not necessarily mean there's some heat-related medical event. You'll see that often in kids that have cramps that have been running around on a hot summer's day. Get them out of the sun, massage the affected muscles, give them hydration, maybe prehydrate them. I think he would even be smarter. Get them, get fluids into them before they go out, and that'll usually resolve the problem. Now, heat exhaustion, in addition to muscle cramps, maybe, or feeling faint, you may see things like a rapid pulse, maybe pale skin, but profusely sweating, some people might be flushing. Uh, some are, people feel nauseous. They have a headache. They may be vaguely confused. And the main thing is that their body core temperature is going up. If the body core temperature is high enough, it's going to cause all of these symptoms, and it could lead to heat stroke. In heat exhaustion, it goes up to about 105 degrees. But if it goes above that, then you could develop heat stroke. Heat stroke is in addition to all the other signs and symptoms I just mentioned, could manifest as a loss of consciousness, because seizures, uh, even uh, bleeding is sometimes seen in the urine or the vomit. Uh, the breathing of the patient or the victim becomes rapid and shallow. They are usually out of it and can't help themselves. That means you have to help them. And so that's very important because if you don't, shock, organ malfunction, that can occur and your 
victim may die. It also means that the patient can't tell you what's happening. That's right. So if you come upon somebody who looks red, who looks hot, and is completely out of it, don't assume that they've had a drug overdose or they're drunk or something. It, it may be a medical emergency, so don't always assume the worst about folks. You may be able to help them. You're absolutely right. Now, one thing I want to mention about heat stroke is that heat stroke, the skin is usually a bright red, but there's not going to be a lot of sweating. Once you hit about 105 degrees, a little more than that, the body's thermoregulation breaks down and it no longer can use sweating as a natural temperature regulator and, and eliminate heat that way. And as such, that forms a cascade of issues that start causing organ damage and can threaten that person's life. So that is actually very important. Now, when you suspect that somebody has hyperthermia or heat stroke, you got to remove them from the heat source, remove their clothing, drench them in cool water if you can uh, drench and put ice in there, that's also fine. Uh, if you don't have a large amount of water to drench them in or to put them in a tub of water, things like that, you might still be able to have uh, cold compresses. Moist cold compresses would be very, very helpful. There's some shake and break uh, cold packs that you could use. If you're going to use those, put them where blood vessels are close to the skin to transport that cold temperature more effectively to the body core. These areas are the groin, the armpit, and the neck. So those are the areas you should be putting them. A fan or otherwise ventilate the victims uh, to help with heat evaporation. That's something that's very important. Elevate their legs above the level of their heart. It's called the shock position. And those are some things that are very important. Now, notice I didn't mention giving fluids. People in heat stroke are oftentimes have altered mental status. If they're not with it, they shouldn't be trying to drink fluids because it may go down the wrong pipe. And if it goes down into the lungs, you've got an even bigger problem than what you started with. With So that is something that is very important to know. Heat stroke, by the way, also important to know that it's preventable in many cases. And here's some recommendations from the Arizona Department of Health. They want you to drink at least two liters, about a half gallon of water per day if you're mostly indoors, one to two additional liters on top of that for every hour of outdoor time. That's a lot, but if you drink as much as you can if you're outside. Drink before you feel thirsty, prehydrate, as I mentioned. Make sure you avoid alcohol and caffeine. Wear lightweight and loose, light-colored clothing. Use a sun hat, uh, and you got to deflect the sun ray, sun's rays in some way. If you use sunscreen, that's a good idea. Sunburn does decrease the ability of the body to evaporate heat, so that's important. Now, about sunscreen, you have to apply it before you leave the house 15 minutes before going out to allow it to absorb. That's really important. Don't eat big meals. Uh, eat smaller, more frequent meals instead of large ones. That will be very helpful. The body is not going to use its energy to digest food then, and indeed, you, your body the blood in your body can go to the skin, and that helps uh, release heat into the atmosphere and out of your body and cooling you off. The bottom line really is don't do any strenuous work or exert yourself excessively in a situation where you're in the midday of a, in, in the hot summer. Stay indoors as much as possible, and if you have to be outside and you have to exert yourself, 
please take regular breaks in the shade. That's very, very important. So if you got to catch them Pokemon <laughs> this weekend, please do so very early or very late in the day. Please don't forget to drink a ton of water or have some of those sports drinks. Gatorade and some of those other drinks are essentially colored sweat, and they have those electrolytes, sodium, potassium, other things that can help you replenish what you have lost. It's most helpful for diarrhea, but it's not a bad thing to have in a hot summer day's heat wave. That is about all the time that we have for today, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to the Survival Medicine Hour with that old Dr. Bones, <laughs> that beautiful young Aww. nurse Amy. She is just incredible. You're a sweetheart. And we appreciate her being here. We've had to talk to her agent, her publicist, <laughs> and... Hillary Clinton yeah. and oh, everybody yeah. else, Donald Trump, to get her here. And we're, we're very, very lucky to have her <laughs> join me. us here today. Aww. So I hope that you will listen in to future episodes of the Survival Medicine Hour. You will find us on blogtalkradio.com. Also, a lot of great other networks like the Prepper Broadcasting Network, the USA Emergency Broadcasting Network, Survival Central Radio, uh, Shake and Wake Radio, all sorts of other great places. We appreciate your support. support. Absolutely. We absolutely do. And subscribe to YouTube. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Don't forget our Dr. Twitter. Bo Follow us on Twitter at yep. Prepper Show. Absolutely. Thanks for listening in, and we'll see you next time. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>